Good evening, Grace Covenant Church. Um, my name is Sean, one of the associate pastors here. Um, proudly over the men's ministry. Men, I want to thank you for showing up last Friday. We had a great time. Um, and then also, Pastor Paul pointed out um, how much greater Jordan was than LeBron. Of course, he goes and promptly gets swept, um, just to add to that argument. I just wanted to clear this up. I do think Jordan is better than... Before we get in this word, I just wanted to get that out of the way. <laughs> Jordan is greater than LeBron. I was messing around last week. It was all jokes. <laughs> all right, now we can look to some more serious matters and look at, um, look at Scripture. Um, this, this evening, what I'm, I'm hoping to... Um, be able to share some ideas just to kind of tell you where we're going um, this evening is um, dealing with the idea of discipleship. Um, often we hear the cost of discipleship, and, and rightly you should hear that. It should be preached. Um, Luke 14 speaks to the, the cost of discipleship and how Jesus says that if you want to be one of his disciples, then you have to pick up your cross every day, that you have to be willing to die to yourself. But often what I've noticed is that we're not really hearing the other side of the equation. So like if you did a full cost analysis, we, we tend to just focus on what we have to give, but we don't focus on what we get in return. And so what my hope is, is to point out just a few things. I'm not going to try to lay before you an exhaustive list of things, just three items that I believe are found in Colossians um, that can help us to, to see what the cost of non-discipleship is. There is a cost that we have to pay if we want to be disciples of Jesus. But what happens if we choose not to? What are we giving up? And I believe that just looking at just a few points, I think we will recognize that the cost of non-discipleship is a lot higher than we thought. And maybe, just maybe, we're getting the better deal by having to die to ourselves and follow Christ. Maybe, just maybe, he has something in store for us that's going to allow us to become the, the best possible self that we could be, namely Christ living through you. So what I'm going to do is look at Colossians 1. We're going to look at verses um, we're going to look at a couple of different verses. I want to start off with um, just kind of in the tradition of reading Scripture. I just I want to do that. So we're going to look at um, Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to get together um, I pray, Father God, that you will use me as a tool to be able to communicate, communicate the message that you have for your people. They don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from you. So I ask that you will use me now, that you will open up our ears to hear well, um, and that your purposes will be accomplished this evening in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it costs everything. That's what discipleship is. That's, um, 
That's what Jesus has said. And, and, and as I said before, we, we, have a, we have a tendency to look at that because the cost is great. I mean, everything in our cultural upbringing tells us to think about ourselves. American individualism, it's just kind of the way of life. It's, it's what we applaud, is what we, one of the reasons why we can get into a debate about LeBron and, and, and Michael Jordan, even though basketball is actually a team game, is because of the individual excellence that these men have put on, on the court. We, we, we think of um, various corporate execs and um, women of great stature, what they have done individually are the things, are the people that we point to and that we point out. And so we kind of come up underneath a culture that tells us that life is really about us, that we are kind of at the center of it. And, and it's, you're asked very early on, what do you want to be? What do you want to become? How do you want to live the life? Um, how do you, you want to live your best life? And, and those are the things that you pursue. And you're encouraged to do that. That's, that's not something that I, I didn't receive encouragement in. And, and at times I'm probably doing it myself because uh, in terms of encouraging my children in that way because it's something culturally we do. It's kind of the grid by which we just fa- factor in information because that's how it is in America. That's something that's common. I don't care what your race is. Um, that's something that's common here in America, in America if you grow up in this type of culture, individualism kind of being about yourself on some level. And so what this kind of cultural Christianity does and, and, it, and it kind of like flows into a way that we approach the church. And we, we look to the church with kind of like a consumer mentality. And we come to the church and we look, what can the church give to me? And we don't look to lay out our lives. We don't look to serve. We look to be served. Because culturally, that is what we have been taught over and over and over again. And I believe this cultural Christianity actually is one of the reasons why we have a hard time dying to to self. Why why it's hard to, to really pick up our cross every day and follow after Jesus. Because this cultural Christianity has begun to lower the bar of discipleship. And it says, it doesn't really take all of that. I mean, I mean, you know, Pastor Paul driving, you know, back and forth to Charlottesville. I don't know if God really would want you to do that. I mean, that, that's a little much, don't you think? I mean, God would rather me be comfortable, wouldn't he? And so we, we lower the bar. Cultural Christianity lowers the bar on what discipleship should be. And so we don't invest ourselves like we should. We don't invest ourselves in each other and community like we should. And so we don't get sharpened. We, don't, we, we miss out on the benefits of the, the hidden treasures that God has placed on the inside of you within this community. Because I don't know if I should really vest myself. I mean, I've been working 40 hours this week. Some of you 50, 60 hours this week. And, and you know, I just don't really have the energy. I don't know if I have more to give. So this cultural Christianity, similar to what Paul was combating in Colossae, is kind of creeping in. It's, 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 it's something, it's, a, it's, it's one of these, these types of, um, for, for Paul it would have been false teachers coming in. 
For us, I don't think it's so much of a false teacher as much as it is the television being on. Maybe it's in the songs that you listen to that have you to focus on yourself, focus on your comfort, focus on what you think, the, the, the trinkets and the treasures that this world can offer, and that was what you should pursue. And the consistent message over and over and over and over again, if we're not careful, just like these false teachers who were trying to creep in to this church at Colossae that can begin to move Christ off the place of being Lord of your life and just one God that you submit to. Because, you know, some of us can submit to um, mammon as, as a God. And we make that the most important thing. But cultural Christianity can syncretize that and, and bring it in and say, you know what, it's okay, God. It don't take all of that. It don't take you having to really, you know, sell everything. You, I mean, you don't really have to do that. That's not really what God would want. God really would want you to be happy. He really wants you to be comfortable. And what I think is the, the tragic loss in that, in this, this idea and, and what Paul was really fighting against in this terms of moving Jesus off of the position that he rightfully belongs in is that you, you don't get to enjoy some of the gifts and the riches of the things that God has made available to us through the blood of Jesus. And so one of the things that Paul does, not only battling this, this idea of kind of this syncretism of bringing in these other cultural ideas and ways of doing life here, in particular in Colossae, what they were, what were battling was these angelic special knowledge guys who, 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 who felt like, man, Jesus is good, but I got some extra information for you. And likewise, I think cultural Christianity, he, it, it secretly kind of just suggests that there's some other knowledge that's available to us alongside Jesus. Also, there was this sense of asceticism that was being trying to brought in that maybe somehow if you discipline yourself the right way, if you follow the Mosaic laws, many of the scholars believe, then, then somehow you, that would really make you right with God. You have to be kind of this Jewish Christian to really be able to walk in the covenant. But not at all. And Paul refutes that very early in this letter. And as you read through it, it's a very short book, four chapters. It's something that we can all kind of get into and read in our devotional time. But he, he starts off, and the reason why I, I believe God led me to this passage and talking about the cost of non-discipleship is because he made Jesus preeminent over everything. And this is why I read um, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He wanted no doubt about it that there is no secret knowledge that compares to who God is. There is no extra work that needs to be done because of God's sufficiency. And it's in that that I believe that we can find some of the costs that we have to pay, at least one in particular, and that's purpose. Verse 16 Verse 16 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You know, cultural Christianity has a way of giving you a purpose. I, I talk to my kids sometimes about how we got to be careful when you watch TV and you say, oh, I want to be that. Or that's the job that I want. And, and it's not to say that maybe some inspiration can't come from there, but the reality is, man, we're submitted to the King of Kings. And he is the one who sets the purpose for our lives. 
Here, what Paul is displaying as he is laying out the supremacy of Christ or the preeminence of Christ, he says that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Your purpose in being designed and being brought to this earth was for him. It's not for us to decide what is best for us. It is him who designed you. But this is where cultural Christianity really messes us up because we think, man, I'm so passionate. I want to do this. I really want to be that. And what God has over here for you has so much more joy available to you, though it may mean a little different type of lifestyle. Case in point, I use myself. Grew up in the church. Remember when my mother got saved for for those who were into music, she had a bunch of albums. And then me and my brothers, we had to, me and my younger brother, we had to take them out to the dumpster. We, we lived on base. I remember we had to take them out to the dumpster. It's a pivotal moment in my life because then I stopped being able to hang out with my boys during the week because we was always at church. Always at church. The youth service on Friday, Saturday was something I can't remember. Sunday certainly was a service. Tuesday we was there. Wednesday back for Bible study. We was in a, a church I'd rather not name, but we was in this church so frequently. I remember my friend saying, hey, man, when don't you go to church? <laughs> my life changed that, that moment, um, and I began to go to church. And one of the things that happened while I was there, because my heart affections wasn't really captured by God, and I was just kind of sitting in service, and I was able to absorb the Sunday school lessons. And when Sister Mary would ask me a question, if I could answer, she would tell me I'm a, a good Christian boy and, and things of that nature. I thought I was a Christian, and cultural Christianity kind of affirmed it and, and told me that it doesn't take all of that. And so I didn't think it took all of that. Long as I gave the profession of faith, long as I said that Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day, then I was good. My life was my own. I could do what I wanted. And at that time, there was a basketball player who was at UNLV who went on to play for the Hornets and the Knicks. His name was Larry Johnson. I love that guy. I wanted to be just like him. I used to grab rebounds and scream and yell just like him. The problem is I'm only six two and a half, and that brother's like six eight. So pursuing that dream of the NBA wasn't quite the, the, the route that I was able to go. And so because I had a passion for video games, I was, able, I was pretty good in math and, and science. I thought, hey, you know what? I'll go to college to make video games. And so I... I was going to go into a computer engineering program, um, end up going to a black school, which is a wholly different, different story. Went to North Carolina A&T, um, um, Aggie Pride. Um, I went there um, and, and got into electrical engineering, kind of in this pursuit of wanting to make video games because I had set the course for my life. Cultural Christianity had just kind of reaffirmed that, and I had chosen the purpose for my life because I had a passion to play video games. And I was like, hey, man, you know, it's a million-dollar industry. Now it's probably billions of dollars. Why, not I, why don't I just get in there, get some of that money? At the same time, I can indulge myself with, indulge myself with some video games. What they didn't tell me was, when I would take one of my computer languages, that coding was a different kind of boring. I mean, it, it wasn't just, like, boring. It was like one of those, like, I'm about to fall asleep kind of boring. 
We only did, I remember making the game tic-tac-toe. Tic-tac-toe. It's like 200 lines of code. And the problem with the language that we was using at that time, which was C++, is that it had, you had to write loops in it. And so what I mean by that is you assign player one with the X and then player two with the O. And then every time the, 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 um, a player picks a, makes a move in that assigned square, the game has to run through to see if someone is one. And so you got to write loops in it. But the problem with loops is not only is coding boring, but it would might say that there's an error on line 42, but it's actually an 82 because that's what sent it to 42, and that's what the program has identified. And so I got to comb through these lines of coding to figure out what was the problem. Now, for all of my gamers in here, can you imagine what that must be like on Madden? Can you imagine what that's like in some of the, the games and the 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 the, the the detail that's in these games. See, I had picked a course for my life that I thought would be good because I wanted to make some money, I wanted to be comfortable, and I felt like that's what I liked. But something happened through the course of my life. I got saved. I was on an Air Force scholarship, so I was serving in the Air Force. I got saved and kind of fast forward through my life up until my, my wife and I have got married. In 2010, we moved here. 2011, I'm struggling to find a job. It's hard. But at that point, I had become a disciple. It wasn't easy. And I remember still kind of pursuing God, and, and I was going to the job club here. Pastor Duke happened to be in there. And he said, you know, son, while you're still trying to figure out what you're going to do and the job that you want. By the way, I'm applying to jobs. I'm humbling myself. I'm looking for a job even as a crossing guard, something, so I can say I'm not at home when my wife is at work. He said, why don't you go volunteer on campus? So I do. One of the greatest moments in my life was when I got an opportunity to share the faith with these two kids, Chris and Luke. We're going through the God test, and one of the last questions in the God test is, do you want to accept Christ as Lord and Savior? And they said yes, both of them. And I was so shocked by it. I'm like, man, what do I do next? What is the next thing you're supposed to do? <laughs> Pastor David probably remembers this. I run up to him. I'm like, hey, babe, hey, Pastor David, man, they said yes. They said yes. Can you believe that? He's like, okay. Did you take them through the prayer of salvation? Oh, oh, I forgot to do that. I got back home that night. It was late. And I woke my wife up in the middle of the night. She, she hates that. So I'm like, get up. Get up, babe. You got to get up. Man, can you believe God allowed me to be a part of the greatest miracle? Seeing two young men come to the faith. God had purpose for me to be there. God had purpose in my life to work in full-time ministry. And there's a satisfaction that I feel when I get an opportunity to do the things that I get a chance to do. And it's not just being up here in front of you guys. It's on a Friday night when we're spending time in prayer. And one of the greatest times that you can have during the week is not going off to the movies or to the club. Those things don't compare to being in the presence of God with other brothers and sisters in the faith. Just by the way, 7.15, Friday nights in the classroom, prayer shield. Please, you need to come there. 
But there's, there is something about that. There is something about being able to serve someone when, when, when I'm dead tired and I'm still, I still go to the hospital to spend some time with someone. There's something about when God is using me to minister to someone else that gives me a fulfillment that I can't really put into words. It's when we recognize that Christ is the one that we are made for. We're made by him and for him, that he can put you in the position. Maybe it's something different for you. Maybe it's singing. Maybe it's being a lawyer. Maybe it's being an engineer. Maybe it's being an athlete. Whatever that thing is, whatever he has crafted you to be, the special talents and gifts that he has given to you, you will only know when you're in a discipleship relationship with him. It's only when you submit yourself to him. It's only when you submit to his process. Romans 8, 28 says that he makes all things work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's not just that he loves you. It's when you're called according to his purpose. So one of the major costs that we need to factor into this cost analysis is purpose. Does cultural Christianity truly give you purpose? Are you going to be able to stand before the the creator of the universe and and really be able to say you've accomplished everything that he has had for you? Something that we have to take into consideration when we think about the cost of discipleship. The second benefit that I believe that that comes is found in Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. If you can jump over there. It says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A cultural Christianity, this this kind of false teaching that can creep in and and try to usurp and move Christ out of position of authority. It also presents some knowledge and wisdom as if it can compare to God. And so we pursue our gurus and the best ways of doing things and but I, there, there's a story of a man in, in the book of Daniel in chapter 1. It's Daniel himself, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're put in a pretty tough position because they want to keep their core values. They want to stick to um, the things that they have been brought up in in terms of their, their, their diet. And so they stand before um, the king's servant. And they refuse to eat from the king's table, which is really, you know, like as I say that, that doesn't sound that bad, but the reality is they could die. They could have died. They could have had their heads chopped off or thrown into prison. There was really some skin in the game in this decision. It wasn't just, you know, I'll miss a couple of meals. But they they chose to be obedient to God. They chose to pick up their cross. Though Christ hadn't come at that moment, this is a full display of what discipleship looks like. What's interesting, though, is that when Nebuchadnezzar has sent that Babylonian army into Israel, he didn't just carry off those four. There were other Jews who were carried along with them. It's kind of, maybe not explicitly said, but it's, it's, the thought is that they actually engaged in the king's table. But there's something that God did within that that I think points to Colossians 2 and 3. As they were going through this kind of Babylonian university, three years of studying, three years of learning kind of the, the, the mystical system, political system that, that Babylon had and, 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 and being transformed into that. Within 
the, the Babylonian cultural education system. Verse 20 in, cha- uh, in chapter 1 of Daniel, it says that Daniel and those guys were 10 times wiser. 10 times wiser than those that would be his peers, than those that would stand up against him. You see, I think cultural Christianity has done something to us where because or has the potential to do something to us where we, we, we just kind of slightly lower down the thought of Jesus' intelligence. I mean, you wouldn't say it if confronted, but I really believe that some of us think that Jesus would have a hard time figuring out Instagram and Facebook, how to work a cell phone. I think, you know, like if if Jesus came back, I think you would take your phone and say, yeah, Jesus, this is an iPhone, whatever. I think we, we would really do that. But do you realize he knows everything? Everything. Not some things. He knows everything. As a campus minister, um, I remember a student, he was working, ironically, on some coding. <laughs> um, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. He was building an app, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. And he told me he had probably spent about 10 hours working on it, and he just wanted to get away. And we happened to run into each other in the Johnson Center, which is a common area of George Mason. And I asked him, I said, man, have you considered praying about that? He said, nah. Why why, why do I need to do that? I need to study. I need need to figure this out. I said, you do know that God knows everything, right? Oh, yeah. God does know everything. Often, I think, when we're not willing to make the sacrifice that comes along with discipleship, we don't recognize that in the process of that, that God reveals things to you. When you're getting up early, when you're, when, when, when you're making your flesh bow down by pushing aside the plate, that it opens you up to receive revelation from God. There's something that God does. It's, it's in that communion with you that maybe there's a brief that you're trying to write, but you can't just get it right. And God does something and opens up some knowledge to you. And you, man, there it goes. Maybe it's a... a, a, a a project that you're working on and you can't make the numbers work and God shows you something and man, you, you just made it happen. Maybe you're a detective and you're trying to figure out where the criminal has hidden the weapons and the Holy Spirit speaks to you. It's being a disciple that pos- positions us to be able to benefit from all the wisdom and knowledge that God wants to reveal to us. Non-discipleship, the cost of non-discipleship, you sacrifice that, you go it alone. So you can just reach out to your colleagues or maybe there's something on Google that you can search that you can find. But having a supernatural knowledge and wisdom being applied to your life, interjected into your situation won't happen. You know, I think of Daniel and his ability to, to, to see, to forecast economic situations and say, you know, this dream is speaking of seven years of prosperity. And, 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 and did I say Daniel? I meant Joseph. <laughs> and there's seven years of, of famine and how to save and understanding that was because of knowledge that God had given him. That wasn't just something. I mean, he didn't read that in a book somewhere. There's knowledge, there's a special knowledge that that Paul is raising up and he is saying to these people at Colossae, look, man, I know that they're talking about they have special knowledge, 
I know that they're trying to interject these, these special techniques, this asceticism to get you right with God. But I'm telling you, Jesus is sufficient. He is sufficient. My final point this evening comes back from Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the saddest thing about cultural Christianity is that you don't really engage into a personal relationship with Jesus. It means this kind of pseudo-Christian thing that, can, that happens, and, and so morally you can affirm Christian behavior. Maybe we, we use it as a national identifier. So that makes you more American to be Christian. But the great treasure that was won for us at the cross was God himself. I mean, there are millions of benefits, but there is nothing greater than the benefit you get because God himself has now made himself available to you. That the Holy Spirit has come to indwell you. Christ in you is the mystery of the ages. And while here in this context, it's the fact that Gentiles, us who weren't a part of the covenant, that we've actually been engrafted in. And it's also a mystery in the fact that God will come to dwell with his created. Us who are rebels against him. Now, I found myself February 2002, I was in the military at that time, and a guy, every time I tell my testimony, I always want to talk about him, Warren Stallworth, he wouldn't leave me alone. He kept saying, Clemens, listen to this, Clemens, listen to that. And to appease him, um, I played um, sermons in a stereo while I was playing video games because I hadn't lost my love for video games. <laughs> and one day I'm listening to a sermon. And I don't remember what he was preaching, but he was coming from Ephesians 1. And verse 4 says that we were chosen before the foundations of the earth. And God, he did something that just stopped me. I don't remember anything else about the sermon other than I began to kind of see this highlight reel of, of my life and the mistakes or the decisions that I was making that was contrary to what I had been raised to do. Sin. Let me stop trying to be clean it up and make it seem good. <laughs> I saw sin in my life. And, and, and my heart sunk because I knew that I wasn't qualified to be a child of God. In fact, I thought it was worse because I had been taught better. And the scene kind of shifted into this sea of people. And it was like a, a bright light that was put on me. And God said, I want you to be a part of my family. You know, you were chosen before the foundation of the earth. Chosen. I mean, that there was millions of options, and he said, I want you. He didn't say, I want y'all. He said, I want you. Chose you to have this relationship with himself. Discipleship isn't easy. But he never intended for us to feel like we need to do it on our own. And that's what the asceticism is trying to creep in and tell us, that you got to do it on your own. 
cultural Christianity telling you you can do it on your own by making your own choices on how far you need to go. That was not God's, that is not God's intent. His intent is for this fellowship to grow to the point where you never taste death. See, cultural Christianity, it kind of does something and gives us an injustice in that it, it kind of cuts off salvation. It makes salvation only about, excuse me, eternal life, which encompasses salvation. But it makes it only about the end, when you die. But Christ died to bring us to God. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Eternal life, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here, it is now. And it's in this fellowship that we can walk out, this intimacy that we can continue to develop with God that will allow us to never taste death. It just means this body ends, but this fellowship that has begun now will continue on for an eternity. Cultural Christianity is one of those things that, man, it, it can just creep in. But it robs us of so much. It robs us of so very much. Where we live here, being comfortable, having a, a, a beautiful home, nice cars, those things are okay. But don't allow that pursuit of those things, the pursuit of the lifestyle, to put you in a place where you don't want to get up early. Because I gotta, I'm, I'm committed to this. Don't let it put you in the place where you can't be obedient to God. Because you would lose too much. Because the reality is, as a, as a, as a cultural Christian, as someone who is, is kind of not engaged into discipleship fully as, as, as Christ has commanded, man, you are paying a huge price. You are paying a tremendous price. There was a young rich ruler who came before Jesus and he said, man, you know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus told him to sell everything and give it to the poor, that brother walked off sad. <laughs> Let's don't let that be the way things are talked, spoken of of us. That when he had an opportunity to walk into something that had eternal significance, the disciples, you know, besides Judas, <laughs> the disciples who walked with Jesus are still impacting our lives today. And it says that God is going to be honoring them with their names at the foundation of a great wall. Man, that's what he walked away from. That's what his culture told him was more valuable, his, his belongings, just like our culture tells us the same thing. And if we don't do a full cost analysis, if you don't begin to say, you know what, I know I got to pay a price here, but this is going to be the outcome. If you're not willing to say that, then you could be missing out on being the best person that you could possibly be. You know, part of the inspiration for the sermon, um, I was reading some things by Dallas Willard, someone that I really enjoy. And this is a statement that he made about non-discipleship. 
1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave the world this book, The Cost of Discipleship. It was a masterful attack on easy Christianity or cheap grace. But it did not set aside, perhaps it, it even enforced the view of discipleship as a costly spiritual excess. And only for those especially driven or called to it. It was right to point out that one cannot be a disciple of Christ without forfeiting things normally sought in human life. And that one who pays little in the world's coinage to bear his name has reason to wonder where he or she stands with God. But the cost of non-discipleship is far greater. Even when this life alone is considered, then the price paid to walk with Jesus. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil, in short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring, which is found in John 10.10. 10. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is after, an, is after all an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. The correct perspective is to see following Christ not only as the necessity it is, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and as life on the highest plane. You know, what we started with when the preeminence of Christ, that last verse in that poem, verse 20, it says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's because of the blood that we can engage into these, these wonderful gifts.